3, verse 9. And there the Bible says, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we thank you for this time you have given us to gather in this building as your church. Father, we pray that we may have come for no other reason but to worship you in spirit and in truth. We come to worship you because in truth you are the only one worthy of worship. For you are God and there is no other. You are the maker and the creator of all things, all things seen and unseen. You alone have causal power. And we worship you for your power. We worship you for your wisdom. We worship you for all of the attributes that your word tells us are true of you. That you define yourself. That we do not get to define you. Because you have done it yourself. And so Father we come to worship you as you have revealed yourself to us in the scriptures. We ask this morning that you will give us enlightenment and discernment as we look at your word. Father, we pray that our, the eyes of our hearts will be opened, that as we look into your word, understanding it and applying it, that your Holy Spirit will change us, will conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. Father, we've come for sanctification, for edification knowing that your word and your spirit alone are able to change us, even in the circumstances of life, whatever they may be, that you use all these things by your sovereign power to providentially bring about us being closer to you, obedient to you, and bringing glory and honor to your name. Amen. If you take your hymnal at this time and turn to number 333, number 333, leaning on the everlasting arms. What a fellowship, what a joy divine, leaning on the everlasting arms. What a blessedness, what a peace is mine, leaning on the everlasting arms, leaning, leaning, safe and secure from all alarms, leaning, leaning, leaning 
everlasting arms. Oh, how sweet to walk in this pilgrim way, leaning on the everlasting arms. Oh, how bright the path grows from day to day, leaning on the everlasting arms. Leaning, leaning, safe and secure from all alarms. Leaning, leaning, leaning on the everlasting arms. What have I to dread? What have I to fear? Leaning on the everlasting arms. I have blessed peace with my Lord so near, leaning on the everlasting arms, leaning, leaning, safe and secure from all alarms, leaning, leaning, leaning on the everlasting arms. Turn with me to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. We live in troubled times. And there are many who believe that we are living in the last days. And they point to things that are happening that seem to be uh, indicators of that. I don't know. I know this. Every generation of the church felt they were living in the last days. And that's the way God intended it. For all the days are the last days. When John wrote the revelation, he said the end is near. The end is near. It's coming. Christ will return. He will come again. But we look at our world and we think, my goodness, can it get any worse? I mean, I read this morning that 94% of Belgian doctors are in favor of what they call, now listen to this, after-birth abortions for babies that have disabilities. There's another word for that, cold-blooded murder. I mean, it's bad enough that here in this country you can abort a baby the day before it would be due, full term, but now they're talking a baby born can be killed simply because it doesn't meet some standard. Uh, you say, well, that doesn't really bother me because I don't have children. I'm not going to have any more children. Let me tell you something. If you're to that point, then you are not far away from saying, well, if you're over the age of 60, all you're doing is costing us money, you know, because we got this Medicare and all of that. Or if you have a certain disease, this or that, you're just costing society money, and we'll just have you report to a, uh, a euthanasia center, and, and we'll just put you down like a dog that you no longer want. And that's a terrible, terrible thing. I mean, we, we see in our culture right now, in our country, where because of this pandemic, you can go to a casino... That's okay, but you can't go to church. Uh, I saw just this morning where a higher court overruled the lower court's ruling that Dr. John MacArthur's Grace Community Church could worship inside. So I don't know what's coming there. 
But you think about it, and then you look at these verses in Romans, and this is a terrible litany of verses. I mean, from verse 9 through verse 18, look at all the things that are said about mankind. None righteous, no, not one. None that seeks after God. Their feet are swift to shed blood. The poison of asp is under their lips. These are terrible people. And you realize that Paul is using quotations from the book of Isaiah 700 years before Paul wrote them and from the Psalms. Some of them a thousand years before Paul wrote them. A long, long time ago. And so man has always been corrupt. Man has always been sinful. It is true that there are some different ways to sin in 2020 than there was in the year 33 or 55 or 70 or 1019 or whatever. But sin is still the same because man is the same. Man is fallen. Now we've come to the second section of chapter 3 here. Uh, it, Paul has been proving ever since chapter 1 verse 18 that what he said is true, that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all uh, ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And he's been showing that. <clears throat> he said that it is an advantage to be a Jew because they have the oracles of God. They have the word of God. It's always an advantage to have God's word. It's an advantage if you are the child of Christian parents, if you had parents who brought you to church, if they had a Bible in the home and they encouraged you to read the Bible. But that doesn't make you any more saved than a child who was raised in a home that was not Christian. And Paul makes it clear that being a Jew is more than being one outwardly. There has to have been an inward change. So he says in verse 9, We have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. So in a sense, he's just coming back to that great reality that he set forth in chapter 1 and verse 18. Notice the term that he uses. All. Jews and Greeks, that would include the whole world, are under sin. Notice, first of all, that this is indicative of a state or a condition, and that that is the way that the Bible looks at all men as a result of the fall. According to the Bible, every human being ever born is in one of two positions, either under sin or else under grace all of us mortals are that way and that's the only division that is recognized in scripture you'll find alternative terms for it sometimes under sin is equated with being under the law but the fundamental thing is we're all under sin and really that cannot be over emphasized the bible unlike much of our thinking does, does not think at all except in these two very broad, big categories. The Bible doesn't say, as 
he a good man? Is she a respectable woman? Do they do good? Do they do acts of kindness for their neighbors? It simply says they're all either under sin or under grace. In other words, we don't think of ourselves or we should not think of ourselves primarily in terms of, of actions or any other particular thing that is true about us. It is our condition that matters. The teaching of the New Testament is in terms of belonging to a kingdom. And you either belong to the kingdom of God or the kingdom of this world. Augustine, after the fall of Rome, wrote about the city of man and the city of God. And he said everyone belongs in one of those two cities. You remember that we're told in the book of Hebrews chapter 11 that Abraham looked for a city whose builder and maker is God, a city that has foundations. Think of it this way. If you were to visit a foreign country and you enter through their port of entry, they are not primarily concerned with uh, the color of your eyes or your hair or how much money you have or whether you went to where you went to college, they are concerned with your citizenship. What realm are you in? Where did you come from to come into their country? They're primarily looking for that. They, they want to know what realm you belong to. That is how the Bible speaks of men. What realm do you belong to? Are you in the realm under sin? Are you in the realm under grace? Are you in the kingdom of God or the kingdom of this world? Do you look for the city of God or have you settled for the city of man? It doesn't start with details. It starts with this broad category. And that's where many people, I think, go wrong with the gospel. They think if you're living a good life, then you're a Christian. But a lot of people live good lives who aren't Christians. There are a lot of people who live morally upstanding lives who are religious. I mean, look at the first century Pharisees. They were good people. They were the best of their day in some senses. They knew the scriptures. They had meticulous rules and regulations about religion. And yet, Jesus said to them, you are of your father, the devil. They were in the wrong realm. They did not recognize that they were under sin. So the Apostle Paul makes what then should have been and what now should be a staggering statement. All are under sin. All Americans are under sin if they are not in Christ. All Russians, all Iranians, all Japanese, all Koreans, all English, all Spanish, all Brazilians, all, all are under sin. They're under the guilt of sin. They're under the power of sin. They're under the pollution of sin. It is this fundamental statement that Paul makes that everything else that he's going to say uh, through verse 18 through 20 comes from. You notice, again, all are in that condition. There are none who escape. Every single individual 
among the Jews and the Greeks are under sin. The case of the Bible is that this is the truth about everybody who's ever been born into the world since the fall, except for Jesus Christ. We are all born under sin. We have this idea that babies are born innocent. No, no they're not. They're born with Adam's sin. Romans chapter 5, we're going to see that very clearly. That when Adam fell, <clears throat> his sin was passed on to his progeny, to the whole human race. So that all are under sin. The term under conveys the idea of authority. Every human being born on this earth is under the authority of sin. That's the fundamental proposition the apostle begins with, lays it down as a result of the fall. This is absolutely vital to grasp. If you don't understand this, if you don't know what happened when man fell, the gospel makes no sense. None whatsoever. There is a sense that we can never understand why Jesus Christ came to the world unless you understand this truth about the fall of man. In the beginning, God made man. He made him representative of the whole of humanity. And he gave him one commandment to keep. Don't eat of the tree of good and evil. That seems simple enough. Anybody ought to be able to do that. But you know what happened. Adam sinned, and as a result, all of mankind sinned in Adam. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that is Paul's argument. He says, as in Adam, so in Christ. So, in Adam is to be under sin. In Christ is to be under grace. But here we're dealing with as in Adam. The fall of man is the most cataclysmic, catastrophic, abysmal, horrible thing that has ever happened in the history of mankind. And that is the way the Bible describes it. That's why the gospel is such good news. So having made that statement, Paul begins to put together proofs of what he is saying from verses 10 through 18. And then he makes some comments in verses 19 through 20. Uh, but here I want us to look at verses 9, 10, and 11, uh, where Paul, from I, the book of Isaiah and from the Psalms, calls for Scripture. The very best thing he could do in arguing with Jews is to bring Scripture to bear to the question, what does the Bible say about it? Now, regarding the fall of man, all kinds of people have their opinions. But we want to know what does God say about it. I mean, I'm most interested in knowing what God says. Is that not the case with you as well? Man's opinions are fine, but they must be measured against the Word of God. And the Word of God says man is not good. He's vile. He's under sin. This doctrine that is set forth here in Romans chapter 3 is what theologians call total 
depravity. And it's a doctrine which has been very difficult for human beings to, to believe and to understand. Of course, you can understand why. We like to think pretty well of ourselves. We like to think pretty highly of ourselves. As a matter of fact, there's a whole subculture that has grown up in this country about self-esteem and self-image and about how wonderful we are, you know. And if I were a part of that, I'd give all of you a trophy just for showing up this morning. Thank you. I'll just thank you, okay? And so men don't like to hear about anything that even resembles depravity. I mean, everybody will say, well, you know, I'm not perfect. But that's a far cry from saying I'm a vile, wretched sinner. I'm a, I'm a worm, as the scripture says, and as the song used to say, until we got so sophisticated, we changed it, you know, would Jesus, would Jesus die for such a worm as I now? I think it says a sinner or something like that. Because a worm's just too <laughs> gross. And yet that's what we are. So the Bible says that we are. In the long history of the human race, there's only been three views, basically, of human nature. The first one is, it is well. This is the view of liberalism. And for the most part, almost everybody around today if people admit they have a problem, it's usually only that they're not quite as healthy as they could be. But we're all making progress. We're all evolving. We're all moving up, up, up. Yeah, you look at the headlines around us and I can see that that uh, may not be true. This view believes that man may need a few minor adjustments but with a little exercise and some healthy self-esteem and eat enough kale, everything will be wonderful, you see. The second view is man is sick. That is the view of the pessimist and of most religions and of probably 90% of professing Christianity. This view sees that all is not well and that man is not well. He is desperately sick, even mortally ill. Uh... But he's not dead. There's still life. It's pictured as a drowning man going down for the third time and needs someone to reach out and grab his outreached hand and pull him up and save him. That's, that was the view of Pelagius. Most of the church today is at least semi-Pelagian. You know, man is sick. He needs help. Of course he needs some help. God's got to help him get there. But if he'll just do the best that he can and reach out for God, God will, you know, come and get him if he makes the effort first. The third view is man is dead. That's the view of the Bible. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, You he has made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. Man is dead. And so he must be regenerated. That was the view of Jesus Christ. He came to Nicodemus, a man with a great name, a man high born, and said to him, Nicodemus, you must be born from above. Why? Because Nicodemus, though physically alive, was spiritually dead. And without the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, nothing's going to happen. So let's look at man's state here. Paul basically looks at man 
in, in three ways. Uh, his moral nature, his intellectual nature, and the matter of his will. Verse uh, 10, he, he concludes that the moral nature of man is, is that he is unrighteous. As it is written, none is righteous. None is righteous. Now you do understand that doesn't mean that man is just a little bit less righteous than he needs to be. Actually, when Paul says that none is righteous, he means that from God's point of view, human beings have no righteousness at all. None whatsoever. All of our righteousness is like filthy rags, the Bible says. To be righteous means to be upright in thought and in life. It's a very important term. To be righteous means that you are blameless with respect to God and your fellow man. Let me put it another way. Maybe you'll understand it better. To be righteous means you are perfect perfect both in your relationship to God and your relationship to your fellow man to be righteous does not mean that you are moral or respectable with or good righteous as the term is used in scripture means that you are absolutely blameless so who needs the gospel all of those who are not blameless. All of those who are not righteous. Jesus gave the perfect description of righteousness when a lawyer came to him and said, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And without hesitation, Jesus answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second command is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Notice the order. He starts with man's relationship to God. What's the first thing you have to do? Love God with all your heart, mind, and strength. Secondly, love your neighbor. You can't reverse that. You can't love your neighbor unless you first love God. Not, not possible. And Paul puts them here in the same order. In 118, the theme of this section, he talks about all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. God first, man second. So that when we define righteous this way, it means living your life in perfect conformity to the will of God. It is living as God desires man to live. And again, you have to be absolutely clear about that. You have to define it accurately. Or else we'll look at people and say, oh, now there are certain people who are righteous. You know, they're not perfect, but, you know, they're, they're good people. They do some good things. But righteous does not mean that. It is not a clarification among men. It is not to divide one man from another. It is to divide man from God. It is man defined in his relationship to God and his relationship to God's law. And to be righteous means to be in absolute conformity to that law without any blemish, without any lack. And Paul simply says that ever since the fall, 
there's not been one righteous. Not, not even one. Not Enoch, not Abraham, not Moses, not Joseph, not Daniel, not Isaiah, not Jeremiah. None of them. There's none righteous. Man has failed in both his relationship to God and his relationship to men. The best men, the noblest, the greatest thinkers, the greatest philanthropist, the greatest idealist, the greatest thinker, the greatest philosopher, the greatest preacher, no matter who they are, there is none righteous. None can stand up to the test of the law. None can say, I am perfect, I am blameless. None is righteous. No, not one. That's why we preach the gospel. You, you always see people, and I've met a lot of people who say, you know, I, I just can't come to grips with the idea that I'm some kind of great sinner. You know. And what they mean usually is, well, I, I, I'm not a murderer. I'm not a pedophile. You know, I'm not a drunkard. In today's world, I'm not a Democrat. Or I'm not a Republican. You know, I, I'm not committed any of these gross sins and so they don't see themselves as a sinner if you do not see yourself as a sinner there is no need for a savior and yet the Bible says there's none righteous this, this is why I try to discourage uh, I don't know how to call it uh, wicked testimonies I guess I, my New Testament professor in, in <clears throat> theological school used to talk about a little boy who back years ago, back when preachers would come and the schools would let out and they'd go for a revival. And they had this preacher who had come from a particularly wicked background before his conversion and he talked constantly about all the sin that had been in his life. And so at the end of the week, the teacher asked the class what they thought they wanted to do with their lives. And this one little boy said, well, up until this week I wanted to be a preacher, but now I don't think I'm mean enough. But you see, those kind of sordid testimonies imply that it takes more of the grace of God to save a man like that than it does to save a child. And it doesn't. It takes the grace of God. The worst sinner who ever lived is only separated from God by grace and nothing else. He is under sin. If he will come under grace, then he is converted. Likewise, the best person who ever lived. You know, if we thought about it a little while, we wouldn't exalt those kind of testimonies because the Bible makes it clear that the most difficult man to save is the moral man, the respectable man, the upright man, the, the man who is admired by all. Those are the ones that are difficult to save. Jesus said it himself. He said to the Pharisees, the most respectable religious people who ever lived, he said the prostitutes and the tax collectors go into the kingdom before you do. Why? Because they will admit they are sinners. They know this truth. There's none righteous. Our problem is we tend to confuse the righteousness of man with the righteousness of God. And we assume that by simply accumulating human goodness, we can please God. 
if we do enough good things, we can please God. Dr. James Boyce uh, in his commentary on Romans gives, a, I think, an excellent illustration of that. He said, suppose there is a platoon of soldiers, <clears throat> U.S. soldiers, in a war, and the whole platoon is captured. And uh, they're prisoners of war. And someone in the United States sends them a monopoly set. And so because they need some way within the POW camp of conducting commerce, they divide up that money that's in the monopoly set. And they use it for commerce within the camp to buy a cigarette or to purchase other things. And as always is the case, there is one man in the camp who is a much better capitalist than all the rest of them, and eventually he accumulates all the money. And eventually they are freed. A helicopter comes and takes them to a Navy ship, and then they are ferried back to the United States. They come into port, let's say into San Francisco. And this man that has accumulated all of this money, he walks into the Bank of America in San Francisco and says, I'd like to make a deposit. And the teller says, of course, we're always glad to help our veterans. How much would you like to deposit? And so he pushes across to her $500,382 from the Monopoly set. And she pushes a button for somebody in little white coats to come and take him away. Because, you see, that currency worked fine in that POW camp, but it is not legal tender. The goodness of men works fine in this world. The righteousness of men will suffice in this world, but it is no good in heaven. When we go to stand before God, we need a perfect righteousness. We need someone to have kept God's law perfectly to be blameless, sinless, who would die in our place. And the only person who has done that is Jesus Christ. Human righteousness is like monopoly money. It's good in the game of monopoly. It's no good out in the real world, real life. So the second thing he talks about is the sinful mind. Look in verse 11. No one understands. No one understands. And again, he's talking about a spiritual condition. People do not understand spiritual things. Don't confuse a lack of spiritual perception with a lack of intellect. There are atheists in the world that are stunningly brilliant, have magnificent minds, but they don't understand spiritual things. In spiritual matters, the important thing is that no one truly understands God or knows Him. You can't find God through philosophy. You can't find God through mathematics. They don't understand spiritual things. The best commentary on that phrase is found in the first two chapters of 1 Corinthians. The people in the church at Corinth were mostly Greeks. They, they prized uh, the wisdom of the Greek philosophers as all of great, the great thinkers of the world did. And Paul writes them and he says, I did not come trying to impress you with that kind of wisdom. 
but rather I was determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Why? Why did he say that? Because human wisdom has shown itself to be bankrupt as far as coming to know God is concerned. Paul says the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Paul was really only echoing what the best of the Greeks had already concluded. Philosophy did not bring them a knowledge of God. The second way Paul explains his decision to know nothing among the Greeks except Christ and him crucified is that statement that spiritual matters can only be discerned by God's spirit. 1 Corinthians 2.14 The man without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God for they are foolishness to him and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Now that doesn't mean that a person cannot have a rational understanding of what the Bible teaches, of what Christianity is. As a matter of fact, you have unbelievers who can stand up and give a brilliant exposition of the book of Romans, far better than I'm doing. But if you ask them what they believe about it, they would say, well, of course, it's utter nonsense. That's what Paul said, but of course, it's not true. But they understand it intellectually. But because the truth of it is spiritually discerned, they do not repent of sin. They do not put their faith in Jesus Christ. If we return to Romans 1, we're reminded of the cause of this ignorance. It's not that the doctrine of God or any other doctrine is that difficult to comprehend. It is rather because we do not want to move in the direction that doctrine leads us. When I was, when I was much younger, I heard people say, there are no real atheists in the world. They simply don't want to submit to God's word. And I thought, well, that's not true because these men are brilliant. The older I get now, now, the fool had said in his heart, no God. They know these things are true. They just don't like what that leads to. It means that they are in rebellion against a holy God and headed for eternal condemnation. We can't deal with that. So we suppress the truth. And as Paul said in Romans 1, our thinking becomes futile and our heart is darkened. So finally, the third thing. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. No one seeks for God. And again, don't think in human terms. You, you meet some fellow and say, oh, don't tell me I'm not seeking for God. I started out in a Baptist church and I didn't like it there, so I went to the Presbyterian church. Didn't like the Presbyterian church, so I went to the church of God. Didn't like the church of God, 
So I went to the Episcopalian church. Didn't care much for the Episcopalians, so I thought I'd join the Lutherans. And if nobody's watching, after a few years, he'll jump back in at the Baptist church. And so that person says, you see how I'm seeking for God? No, they're not. They're running away from God. They're seeking a God they've made in their own image. They're not seeking the God of the Bible revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. There's all kinds of organizations, fraternal organizations and others, that talk a great deal about God. And sometimes people will say to me, you should be a part of this. They, they say this and that and the other about God. And so I ask them, do they talk specifically about the atonement that is provided in the person of Jesus Christ in his cross, in his burial, and his resurrection? No, I want no part of it. I want no part of it. Why would I waste my time in some place that just talks about God. For goodness sakes, Muslims talk about God. Hindus talk about God. Confucianists talk about God. There's all kinds of talk about God. That doesn't mean anything. Do they talk about God as he is revealed in the person of Jesus Christ? People aren't seeking God. They're merely using religious trappings to disguise their real intention of running away from God. And everything that faith and commit would, commitment would entail. I remember seeing years ago, there was a man, most of you are probably not old enough to remember him. A few of you would be. There was a man by the name of Bill Moyers. He became a journalist, but he was a press secretary to uh, Lyndon Baines Johnson when he was president of the United States. Bill Moyers was a graduate of Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. And before his life ended, he drifted completely away from the faith. He believed nothing. And he said in an interview with PBS once, if I had to do it all over again, I would not be a man of faith because faith involves such terrible inconsistencies and struggles. I would conclude Bill Moyers was never a Christian. He never knew God. He never understood. He had a great mind. He was a brilliant man. But he did not understand spiritual things because they are spiritually discerned. And the natural man does not understand spiritual things. There are many churches in this land in this world today, you're not going to hear the messages that I'm going to be preaching in the next weeks. They're too negative. They make people feel bad. They're not, they're just not positive enough. It, it, it injures people's self-esteem. And we'd, we'd, need a, we'd need a cry room for you to go to where you could hug a teddy bear or something. But let me ask you something. If you started feeling bad, you lost your appetite, you lost 20 pounds, 30 pounds, and you go to a doctor and he does an examination and he finds that you have cancer. And instead of telling you that you have cancer and you need chemotherapy, he puts his arms around you and he hugs you and he affirms you 
and he tells you what a good person you are and how healthy and wonderful your life is and he pushes you out the door and says go in peace has he really done you a favor you go to another doctor and he says you got terminal cancer we're going to have to cut it out we're going to have to do chemo we're going to have to get aggressive you can live but it's going to hurt he's told you the truth I could wish these verses were not in the Bible but they are and they make it clear this is the state of man the grim truth is all of us are terminal we're under sin and if we die without Christ we are forever terminal here's the good news there is a man who kept the law of God there is a man who loved God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, who loved his neighbor as himself every moment of his existence. And that man, who was also God, Jesus Christ, went to a cross, died for sinners like you, like me, so that if we will acknowledge that, repent of our sin, if we will put our faith, our trust in him, God declares that we are righteous. God declares that we are perfect. He can do that because the perfect righteousness of Christ is imputed to us. And all of our sins are imputed to Christ. That's the good news. But if you don't know the bad news, the good news ain't much. If you did not know that you were terminally under sin, then the fact that Jesus died for sinners wouldn't mean anything. You have to acknowledge sin. Jesus said, I've not come to call the righteous to repentance, but sinners. <laughs> but there's none righteous, Jesus. That's right. Everybody is a sinner. That's who I've come to call to repentance. Everyone must repent. And this cure is not dreadful like chemo. It's a wonderful cure. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be freed from sin and death. Let's pray. Our Father.